This is ESG Decoded, the podcast powered by Climco to provide relevant, actionable updates related to business innovation and sustainability. Join Caitlin Allen and Amanda Shea of Climco for thoughtful, nuanced conversations with industry leaders that explore the complexities, the risks, and the opportunities connected to all things ESG. I'm Yvonne Harris, a consultant and a co-host, and I will be collaborating with Caitlin and Amanda for the discussions that we will present on this podcast. Put simply, ESG is everything that's not on your balance sheet. This leaves room for misunderstanding, oversimplification, and the tendency towards one-size-fits-all perspectives. None of that will happen on this podcast. Enjoy this episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to ESG Decoded. I'm your host, Caitlin Allen, and today I have Bill Davis with me. Bill Davis founded Stance Capital to bring to market investment portfolios that mitigate material, environmental, social, and governance risks and generate excess returns, while at the same time allowing investors to align their portfolios with their belief systems. But Bill didn't grow up in financial services. Bill, let's start with having you tell us a little bit more about your background directly. Well, first of all, Caitlin, it's great to be with you this morning. And I started my career actually in marketing data sciences. I built a company called Database Marketing, which was back in the 80s and ultimately sold it to a small private equity firm in I think 2000 or 2002. And from there, I did some strategic advisory work for some pretty big companies and ultimately ended up actually building a what became a venture-backed renewable energy company uh, that was doing some interesting work dealing with uh, you know very specific post-consumer waste materials and then pivoted into financial services and ultimately became a portfolio manager in the ESG space or more broadly what I call the values aligned investing space. Wow. So you you actually did a lot of different things prior to getting into the financial services and also into sustainability. So what was the turning point in your career? What made you decide that you were interested in sustainability and that you wanted to change careers? Yeah, well, actually it is, I am, my background is a bit unusual because of the, I'd say three major industry groups that I've been a part of, but Ironically, it sort of started actually by going to the transfer station on a Saturday morning. I live in a town called Winchester, Massachusetts, and we don't have garbage or recyclables pickup. Actually, everybody totes it to this sort of central point called a transfer station. And of course, you know, separating out plastics and different colored glass and all these various things. And one day I was doing it and I was just thinking, you know, where does all this stuff go from here? I mean, we, we take so much for granted in the U.S., uh, in particular, because we have such an abundance, I think, of uh, resources like this. But it is, you know, to me, it was like, well, okay, what happens next with all of this? And I ended up doing a bunch of research and concluding that, that you know, over 4,000 years, we've accomplished so much as, you know, multiple civilizations. But the one thing that has never seemed to advance is what we do with waste. We we still, to this day, either bury it at the edge of town or we burn it. And really, that's kind of the way it's always been. And it just struck me that there was sort of an opportunity lost because much of the things that get thrown out actually have energy content in them. 
And so if you could essentially recycle that energy into something else, could be another form of energy, it could be a physical object, it's certainly better than putting it in a landfill and then having that landfill emit a combination of CO2 and methane in pretty much equal portions over the next 20 or 30 years. And of course, methane is you know 20 or 30 times more harmful as a greenhouse gas than CO2. So it just struck me that somebody needed to start thinking a little bit harder about this issue. And, you know, <laughs> so I decided, well, why not me? And I dove, dove into that space. That's so awesome. And at this point, you were already in your 40s. You had built a company. You'd sold a company. You'd worked in tech. You'd worked as a consultant. Sort of how did you what was kind of your next step after your realization there? Uh, well, actually, it it sent me down an eight-year road that involved assembling engineers, scientists, chemists, building a tech plot, a really interesting waste gasification platform, which was really kind of focused on some very specific waste streams, not ordinary municipal waste, but um, more uh, waste streams that contained a lot of wood and things like that. And also raising a fair amount of capital. I mean, we raised a Series A round, a Series B round, led by some prominent venture capital firms in the U.S., supported by a very prominent firm in the Middle East, actually, that led our Series B round. Ironically, and actually, we, you know, we were featured on the Science Channel, on Dis uh, Discovery Channel. It was called ZGen. That was the name of the company. Okay. But ironically, eight years into it, and having survived 2008, we actually weren't able to commercialize the technology specifically because of fracking in the U.S. So at the time I launched the company, I think in 2003 or four, we were uh, natural gas was trading at about $12 in MMBTU. Um, the IEA, the International Energy Association, I think is what it stands for. Uh, was agency, yeah. Agency, yeah. I was forecasting that it was going to go to $20. Well, it didn't go to 20. It went to more like two. Actually, it was like three. And ultimately, we were competing then against really cheap natural gas, and it was right. hard to monetize right. what it was that we were doing. And so we put all of this on the shelf. And, you know, as I think back on it, I think that once you get interested in impact and sustainability, it's pretty hard to go do anything else. It's a really captivating space, at least it is to me. And so I started thinking, actually, I started rethinking about something I had been thinking about for a while, which was something called socially responsible investing. And as I unpacked it, because I thought, on, okay, on the idea, on the face of it, there's a good idea here. But when I got a little bit closer to it, what I realized is basically the practitioners of it, and by this, I mean the portfolio companies, or the, you know, the the asset management firms that were building product really weren't in the business of portfolio construction. They were more, you know, they were more activist shareholders by nature, and they were essentially using investment fees to pay for future activism, but they weren't really building portfolios in a way that were, were generating competitive performance. And so I thought to myself, you know, this is, this doesn't make any sense, right? Like you can't scale a category by offering concessionary returns because there's always going to be some people that sign up for it. And indeed, after about 30 years of socially responsible investing, probably 20 billion had been attracted into the category. But that's not a lot of money 
you know, spread across 20 firms over 30 or 40 years. And, and this has been borne out, I think, by, you know, if you actually just look at the asset flows into that space over a really long period of time, you see that it just stopped growing. And in fact, it was shrinking. But it also occurred to me that over time, more and more investors were going to want to align capital with their values, just in the same way they're aligning brands with their values. And, and to me, you know, capital is really sort of falls under the same sets of rules. And so it occurred to me that there was an opportunity to try and build a company that would build investment products that would allow people to invest, invest according to their ethical preferences and hopefully do so without sacrificing performance. And so that was the vision that we set out upon. And this was really, I started working on this in 2013 and live launched a product, which is called Stance Equity ESG Large Cap Core. I actually launched it in uh, 2014. And then I, I did it at another financial services firm that I helped co-found that wasn't really purpose-built around sustainable investing. And then in the summer of 2016, I lifted myself out of that firm and formed Stance Capital because really this is all I want to do. Oh my gosh, such an interesting story. And I, I think it's, I just want to point out that so many people that we talk to that are really inspiring leaders in the space, they were following a passion, they were following an interest. And I hear that a lot in your story, you know, following your trash to the transfer station, <laughs> <laughs> to the right. dump, right. or the incinerator, and following the the cookie crumbs, say, of what wasn't working in quote, responsible investing and looking for that opportunity. And then, you know, it's it's really interesting. There's so many examples throughout your career. So I love hearing that because I think, I think a lot of people, this is perhaps an aside, but I think a lot of people live their lives trying to think about what will look good or what will, will this work on my resume to get me to X, Y, and Z, but really what gets people to having, I think, what I would call a very successful career is when you're you're following things that you're really interested in and problems that you really are interested in solving. And that passion really is what leads to this type of fulfillment, right? When you say, this is all I want to do. Of course it is. That's so, that's just really cool. But let's talk about the ESG products themselves. So when we say an ESG product, when it comes to an investment product. Why don't you just give us a sort of a brief overview of of what that means and what your product is? What is the stance equity ESG large cap core? What does that mean? Okay. So just a, a, a couple of words on ESG just to set the table a little bit. The ESG space, as I've said, grew out of the socially responsible investing space. There's a lot of terms that get thrown around and without getting kind of stuck in the mud of terminology, when people talk about ESG and responsible investing and sustainable investing, they're generally more or less talking about the same thing. When people talk about impact investing, that can also be the same thing, but I tend to think of impact investing as more private company investing. So either yes. place-based or private. And so on the public side, I think, you know, we were one of without really understanding that this was going to be the case. And in fact, I don't even remember back in 2013 if ESG was a term. I think in Europe they were starting to use it, but it yeah. had definitely was not what a common phrase in, in the U.S. People were talking about CSR, corporate social responsibility, 
I think it had just, you just started seeing sustainability actually sneak into conversations. Yeah. Um, but it was really still CSR at that time. Yeah. And, it, and in fact, when I actually originally launched the product at a different firm, it was called Sustainable Equity. And it wasn't until I lifted out and formed my own company that I renamed it ESG because That's ESG had, had actually become a term by 2016. But back in 2014, you know, the, the, the genesis of ESG data starts with corporate sustainability reports that are filed by companies. Now, in 2014, I think only about 25% of the S&P 500, which are the largest companies, you know, by market cap in the U.S., were actually filing CSRs. And of course, there is no statutory or regulatory requirement that anybody file a CSR. So there just wasn't a whole lot of data to work with prior to 2014. But I think between 2014 and 2018, it went from 25% of the companies to about 85 or 90% of the companies in the S&P. And now, of course, even smaller cap companies, not members of that index, are also uh, now voluntarily filing these CSRs. And so what we recognized is fairly early on that there's not a lot of data to work with from a off balance. And when I say not a lot of data, I mean non-financial data, right? Because obviously there's very rich repositories of financial historical data and fundamental data that can be analyzed and parsed and, and whatnot. But in terms of sort of this off-balance sheet, environmental, community-based, governance-based data, there just wasn't a lot to work with. And yet, you know, Bloomberg, as an example, which is one of the aggregators of this data, even back in, I think, 2016, had probably 200 data fields that sort of sort of bubbled up to ESG. And what we realized pretty quickly is, ultimately, what we're trying to do is compare companies against their industry group peers. Cause it's like, what's the point of comparing a beverage company to a bank? What, what's material from an environmental standpoint or a governance standpoint are probably a little bit different, maybe less governance, but certainly environmental and social. And so we pretty quickly realized that what we wanted to do was we wanted to divide the S&P 500 into industry segments and sub-segments. And then we wanted to be able to compare and contrast companies that look alike. So, you know, if we're looking at um, an auto parts company, we want to be able to compare it to all the other auto parts companies, which means that we weren't going to be looking at 200 data elements. We were going to be looking at 10 because if any, if companies are going to report anything, or if you can figure it out, even if they don't report it, it's going to be at a really high level. And we thought one of the mistakes being made in the industry was just trying to get too granular. Uh, and you know, Caitlin, one of the ways I like to describe the ESG process is we're trying to separate good companies from bad companies. And of course, there are good companies that do bad things and there's bad companies that do good things. And we could probably just like people, just like people right? Yeah. And 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 you could probably identify you and I could have a conversation right now and we could probably identify 10 companies that we think are just great. And we could probably identify 10 companies that we would agree are truly not great. And so the hard part is sort of that gray area in the middle, but unfortunately that gray area is in the case of the S and P 500, about 480 companies, right? So right. what we're really trying to do is develop a composite picture of a company 
and from that composite picture, determine whether they are a company that's going to be on the right side of ESG or the wrong side. And, and I should also add, we're not doing this to make a political statement. We're not really doing it to make any kind of a statement. My view is that ESG risk is performance risk. Meaning, and it may not rear its head today, but it, but it might tomorrow, right? I mean, you can take governance as a great example. I'll use Volkswagen, which is obviously a European company and not in the S&P 500, but Volkswagen did not have good governance. That bad governance ultimately led to, you know, bad decision-making on the part of management. And that ultimately led to a significant hit to performance and the market cap of the company. Same thing with Wells Fargo. Right. These were two companies. And, it, and the, the difference being that Wells Fargo actually, interestingly, got really good ESG scores from almost everybody and frankly was in our portfolio at the time. I forget when this was. It was so long ago. I think it was in the fall of 2018, if I'm not mistaken. But when all of the fraud came out at Wells Fargo, one of the things we realized is, you know, fraud is a difficult thing to build a screen against because it, it just sort of happens. But in, in and then you got to decide what you're going to do about it. But that's sort of a different issue. But back to the key point, we're trying to separate good companies from bad companies. We start at a high level. We compare companies against their industry group peers. We quantitatively score them on material risk factors, which apply to their industry group, which is a way of saying that if we're talking about banks, we're not looking at air emissions. But if we're looking at an industrials company, we are looking at air emissions. And then what we would simply do is quantitatively score companies, eliminate the bottom 50% of each industry group. The remaining companies would be available theoretically to become candidates to be in the portfolio, but it doesn't mean they necessarily make it into the portfolio. So what I've just described is the ESG selection process. And I will tell you that over time, we've gone from having 10 of these material risk factors as we did back in 2014 to today having 24. And one of the reasons is that companies are disclosing more and more, which enables us to get more granular in terms of how we're looking at companies and their peers. So air emissions, I mentioned, is now broken down into NOx, SOx, VOx, and particulate matter. So, you know, injuries and fatalities, it used to just be, you know, lost time due to injuries. Now we can break out injuries and fatalities. And during COVID, second quarter of COVID, which would have been Q2 or Q3 of actually 2020, we realized something kind of interesting, which is that there is a material risk factor around a pandemic that only applies to certain industry groups, but it's extremely important in those industry groups. And just as an example, think about meatpacking. And that is what happens when you don't have paid sick leave and you've got workers who are low paid, working in close proximity, desperate for the income that they have because they needed to basically pay the family's bills. If they get COVID, what's the first thing they're going to do? They're going to come back to work, right? Because they can't afford not to. And then ultimately, everybody else in the factory is going to get COVID. The factory gets shut, or the, I should say the production facility gets shut down. Company misses its quarterly earnings, uh, shareholders pay for it as a result. And so we actually added that in Q3 of 2020 as our 24th material risk factor, although it only applies, as I said, to certain industry groups. So there's one problem with everything I just described, and that is that it's all rear view mirror data because much of it is aggregated from these CSRs, these 
corporate sustainability reports. And as you well know, it's often, you know, 18 months, the data is 18 months old by the time it gets published. I mean, everything I've just described that we do, I think is somewhat unique in the ESG space, but then we do something on top of it, which I think is even more unique. And that is before we develop a final ESG score on a company and then determine whether it's in the top 50 or bottom 50% of its industry group, we get feeds from about 18 different, mostly nonprofits, but not always nonprofits, who are doing deep dive research into specific issues. So an example might be palm oil deforestation or factory farming or illegal logging or significant environmental fines and penalties or human rights violations or for-profit prisons. So we actually get data feeds from these NGOs. And if a company is in the bottom quartile of one of these rankings, these published rankings, we will then apply a, a score deduction to that company, typically like a five-point deduction. And that doesn't seem like a lot, right, if they're a bad actor. But what I would tell you is that companies tend to group pretty tightly within their industry group. So on a scale of zero to 100, beverage companies might be 45 to 55. Well, if you're getting a 5% deduction or a five-point deduction, you're pretty much guaranteed to be knocked out of the top 50%. And so we have a mechanism within our approach that allows us to incorporate more real-time deep dive research-based data along with the CRSR data to get a composite picture of whether this company's, you know, generally speaking, in the top half of its industry group or the bottom. One of the things that we also don't do is we don't say, okay, well, it's an industrial company, therefore we're not going to invest in it. And I think that's one of the problems in the ESG space is so much of it is just growth oriented and all that. So Bill, let me let me just jump in. Just I want to say that, especially to our audience, we harp on this all the time. ESG investing is not the same thing as an exclusionary screen. Because so many people, when they say ESG, they really what they mean is, you know, essentially fossil fuel divestment, right? Mm. <laughs> or we're divesting, at least in Texas, there's a huge misconception. So I really want to thank you for giving us this super in-depth description of a real, actual ESG investing process, because it is not the same thing as just saying, oh, this company's in an industry that I don't like, I'm just going to not invest there. No, it's it's actually a very, or it should be a very thoughtful risk-based screening, and that is ESG investing. So I'm I'm really grateful for that. But to make that bridge, though, really back to the very beginning of the conversation, why do so many of these other ESG funds, you know, they they do get a bad rep, right? A lot of people are saying, hey, that's really just a tech fund, and that's why they're doing so well. Let's talk a little bit about that. What what do you say to that? Well, I think, you know, first of all, when you when we think about values-aligned investing, it's the values of the investor. Right. So you're going to have a range of values. There are going to be investors who basically say, look, I will not invest in thermal coal, but I'm open to investing in fossil fuels if they are aggressively transitioning towards, you know, decarbonization. Uh, right. And we, by the way, went through the same thing. We for for a time we didn't invest in utilities. And then we said, well, wait a second. There are utilities because there's there's coal utilities and there's all kinds of utilities, but then we said, well, wait a second, there's a handful of utilities now 
and we, I think we both know who they are, that are not only have they made date certain commitments to transition to renewables, but they're spending more than 50% of their capex to get there. And so, you know, our view is that the greatest leading indicator of future behavior is how you're spending your money today. And so when we see companies spending a lot of money, either in M&A or research or hard dollars being deployed into plants and facilities, that's a fairly good indication of where they're going tomorrow. And so we've actually even modified and revised our screens around that as a result. So back to your point, though, I think that ESG, think of it as a continuum. And at the one end of the continuum is stuff that's truly authentic, that's really mission-driven. And again, obviously, portfolio managers develop product through their own kind of worldview lens. And then hopefully there's clients that align with that product, and that's how they gather assets. And I would say the middle of the spectrum is most of the spectrum. It's probably 80% of the product in the ESG space. It's very growth-oriented. It's very tech-heavy to a lesser extent healthcare, but it, and it tends to skew mega cap and you know, tech and comm services. And there's really nothing wrong with that, but it is in fact, mostly a concentrated sector bet, which everybody should just be aware of when they go into it. And then secondly, I think that the other issue with it is that if the motive for investing in ESG is in fact concern about climate risk, you're not really doing anything about climate risk by investing in companies that basically don't have a decarbonization problem to begin with. And so I think our point of view is every industry group is going to survive all the changes that we're going to go through as the economies around the world decarbonize over the next 20 or 30 years. Every industry group survives, but not every company survives. And so what we want to do is be investing in those companies, in those industries, where they're going to have an edge over their competition and reward investors. And that's kind of how I think we think about it. Now, there is also a bunch of greenwashing that takes place, which I would describe as making marketing or PR claims that really aren't backed up by you know, underlying facts and behaviors. And by the way, that applies both to the companies I invest in and it also applies to the investment companies building products to invest in those companies. But the, you know, the irony is that in Q1 of 2020, I think the authentic ESG portfolios or portfolio managers benefited from something else that was going on during COVID, which was that a few people, well, I think they probably remember it pretty well in Houston, but there was a kind of a price war between Russia and the Saudis over yes. oil. And I think oil dropped precipitously. ESG yeah. funds tend not to own oil and gas, and therefore they actually did pretty well relative to the rest of the market, or I should say they didn't underperform the market, which really, I think, kind of unleashed a lot of asset flows into ESG. Now, ironically, quarter we're in right now, Q1 of 2022, the opposite is occurring, which is to say that ESG funds have very purposeful approaches to investing, which, by the way, might include no fossil fuels, and that's perfectly fine as far as I'm concerned, because I think everybody needs to find the product that aligns with their values. Those funds are all underperforming fairly dramatically because oil is up 30% this quarter. Oh, and by the way, mega cap tech and comm services is probably the worst performing sector 
in the economy this quarter. So they don't own the one thing that's going up and they own an abundance of the one thing that's going down the most. And so it's not going to be a great quarter, but in some ways the greenwashers are going to sort of save the industry because most of the assets in ESG, I think, belong to these sort of ESG aware products coming out of places like BlackRock that aren't really, in my view, all that authentic. So it goes back and forth. I mean, I think to be an ESG investor, you have to take the long view because this is about creating systemic change that everybody needs to be a part of. Something you mentioned earlier, it, it's like, that's why you guys don't, you you do invest at Stance. You invest across the economy, right? It's not just one sector or another. We invest across as right? much of the economy as we can. If we can find companies that meet our underlying ESG criteria. And then I should also point out, you know, because I started off by saying that I didn't think socially responsible investment was good at portfolio construction. I've only mentioned one third of what we do in portfolio construction. The other two thirds I can cover very quickly, but we basically have a 22 year database of corporate filings, well, market data, company specific data, and we build algorithms to predict which fundamental financial and risk factors are most likely to outperform in the upcoming quarter. And so th there's that process, which winnows down the S&P 500 to, down, to about 100 companies. And then there's a third process, which is also kind of unique in the industry. Actually, it's not kind of unique. It is unique. Uh, and that is risk optimization. You know, I think ESG in and of itself is good at mitigating certain risks, but we take it one step further. And when we finally build a portfolio, we weight the positions in order to minimize correlation between the positions and also to maximize uh, tail risk uh, management. And so it's really kind of the interplay of these three things that we think gives us our edge to the point where I would say that it's not the goodness of the companies that we're investing in that are yielding the results that we've had since inception. It's actually the ESG part of our portfolio creates the values alignment, the fundamentals and the risk optimization drives the alpha in, in the actual portfolio. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. And, it, you know, if you go to the Stance Capital website, you can see how much the Stance equity has really outperformed. I want to be careful here. It doesn't always outperform, right? But if you take right. if you take our eight-year track record, which is what we have at this point, you will see that gross and net of fees we have outperformed the S&P 500, and we've done it with much less volatility. So we have a lower beta than the S&P, if, if that's a term that means has meaning to your investors. So just think of lower volatility and lower down capture. So Q1 of 2020, the COVID quarter, the S&P was down 19.4. We were down 15.6. That's a huge difference because investors tend to think, you know, well, okay, if I'm down 10%, then I need to go up 10%. Well, no, you need to go up 20% to get to where you started. And so making up for losing money is difficult to do. And so by losing less, you end up by winning more in the mm -hmm. long run. But, you know, we don't outperform every year. Last year we underperformed, uh, I think, but I think we've outperformed for the last six years or something like that. Well, Bill, thank you. So just to summarize then the, the, the three key pieces of portfolio construction. The first is, and this is where you get the sort of building in your values, is which of those ESG risk factors are 
material to company performance, but also that's kind of where one might inject one's values at that piece. The second piece was the algorithms that you've built that are essentially predicting which factors, which of those factors are most likely to perform in the next quarter. Did I get that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the third would be the risk optimization piece that you yep. do. Yep. That's and it. so <clears throat> that first piece is where the decisions of which factors are material and or important to one's values. And by the way, it could just be which ones are material, right? Maybe someone just thinks, hey, this is a great investing opportunity, a new way to generate alpha. Maybe they don't care about it, right? They just think it's a good product or not, right? So there's that piece, the algorithms for predicting performance and then the risk risk optimization. And I'm repeating it for myself to understand. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's essentially Those right. Three. And you're right. We do have investors who don't care about ESG, but they like risk managed large cap investing, which is what we're delivering. And they don't just want to invest in, you know, the S&P 500 has gotten to be very concentrated. 25, nearly 25% of the S&P is in six companies, all of which are mega cap tech and comm companies. And so, you know, the max position size in our portfolio is, I don't know, three and a half percent. Apple right now is 7% alone you know, of the S&P 500. So, wow. yeah, I think people who are interested in ESG really, really should take the time to understand how authentic is this? How committed are the portfolio managers? And there's no right or wrong, right, with values, right? Because they just are what they are. But do the values of those PMs align with my own values? And am I comfortable with it? And I think that's, it's not much harder than that. I mean, the other hard part is that it's, product availability. So last year we launched a ETF version of our product, which it's a New York Stock Exchange listed ETF that trades under the ticker ticker, uh, STNC, which is stance without the vowels basically. And we did that to democratize access to what we think is good ESG for really any, you know, any size investment essentially. Because within an ETF, I mean, there's basically no minimum, whereas in a separate account, which is mostly where our clients' assets are, you know, there's a $150,000 minimum. And so not everybody wants to or has $150,000. So that's, yeah, that's basically what we've been doing. And then we've also wow. launched, we also have another product, which is a global ESG strategy, which is very much more climate solutions oriented. So we're investing in newer technologies along themes of water, waste, sustainable agriculture, storage, transportation, and infrastructure. I love that that is, that's so comprehensive. And I think a lot of people do that aren't necessarily deep into this topic. They think climate, they think all they think of is energy, Mm -hmm. but it's, (laughs) it's not just, you know, it's literally how we live on earth. It's all of those things. It's the water, waste, agriculture, storage, transportation, infrastructure, all the things you just said, and then some, right? So I think that, you know, if, you, if you've been listening to our podcast and you're still thinking climate when you hear ESG, I hope you don't do that anymore <laughs> because no, it's, it's so right, much it's, more. It's, it's so much it's, more. It's bigger than climate. It's much bigger yes. than climate. But I mean, obviously climate's kind of the, it's very much in our face right now and certainly in yes. the Houston market for a variety of reasons. But yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the real challenge is we have, as world's economies have been both extractive and driven by consumption, right? And we have yeah. to collectively figure out a way to be regenerative as opposed to extractive and to be a whole lot less consumptive. And that's a challenge, right? Because businesses exist to make money. So how do you make money during that transition? And I know you know a lot about the fashion industry. The fashion industry is a great example of this. I mean, the amount of water that it takes to make a cotton t-shirt, you know, issues around forced labor, you know, the whole well, fashion the industry waste. is... The waste yeah. problem. Going back to your, your original first love here, yeah, the waste right. problem is absolutely astounding. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Bill, it's been so wonderful to have you. I know that we could talk for three hours on this podcast or more. And folks that want to hear more, um, please do comment on our social pages and let us know what you'd like to dive into deeper. You have so much additional experience that we didn't even get to. So you're on the board, of course, of Ceres, C-E-R-E-S. We'll put that in the in the resource boost for you. The Children's Environmental Literacy Foundation, which I've had the, the pleasure of learning about recently. You've been a guest lecturer at Vanderbilt, Harvard Business School, to name a few. And you're just a wealth of knowledge and experience. And we're really grateful to have had you on today. Well, it's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. And we will see you next time on ESG Decoded. Thank you for listening to ESG Decoded. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you consume yours and follow ESG Decoded and Climco across social media platforms. Until our next episode, take what you learned today to drive long-term value for your organization by doing good for people and the planet.